your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 6. And then if you would maybe put a bookmark or a finger or one of these little strings, if you have them in your Bibles, over at Matthew 24. So when we get there, we can flip over to that real quickly and not waste any time. I have kind of a long lesson, so I need to get going, get rolling here. In the book of Malachi, which you probably know is the last book in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit inspired that prophet to record these words that I have up here on the overhead regarding God and God's work with Israel. The prophet wrote, And he, the he there speaking of God, shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, that's a reference to Israel, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. This prophecy speaks of a coming time when God will sit as a refiner of Israel. He will manipulate the refining flames to the point that they get just as hot and as, as intense as necessary in order to get the nation of Israel purified and purged of her sin of unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, is her true Messiah and Savior. God will allow the nation of Israel to go through a time of intense persecution and trials such as she has never seen in her history. And if you know anything at all about the history of Israel, you know she has certainly gone through some intense persecution and some intense trials. But this last trial, this final trial, will serve as the purification process which ends in her salvation. She will emerge from the heat of God's refining flames ready to accept the Lord Jesus Christ when he arrives at his second coming to rescue her from otherwise total annihilation by her enemies. You know Israel is surrounded by enemies. And then at long last, she will offer to him an offering in righteousness because she will finally give to her to him her faith, which is so long overdue. Well, when the time comes for God to get Israel prepared for restoration to her original place of blessing, he will have finished with his purposes for the church. Her mission, the church's mission on earth, will be fulfilled. So she will be removed at what? At the time of the rapture, just as suddenly as she began on the day of Pentecost. Following the removal of the church, the earth will then enter into a unique seven-year period of time, which has a number of Bible, biblical titles. Uh, one name for this period of time is the time of indignation. There is also the title, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble. The distress of nations is another title for it. The day of darkness, the day of gloominess, the day of the Lord, the great day of God's wrath, Daniel's 70th week. And because these seven years will be characterized by an unprecedented time of tribulation, they are also most commonly known as what? The time of tribulation, seven years of tribulation. Well, in the two prologue chapters to this tribulation period, which were chapters 4 and chapters 5, which we just finished studying in our last lesson, we learned that the Lord has the right and he has the authority to sit as the refiner and the purifier over not only Israel but over the entire world, right? 
Why does he have this right? Because he is its creator, its kinsman redeemer. He's its uh, conqueror. It's his by way of, remember the three C's? By way of creation, by way of Calvary, and by right of conquest. He overcame sin, he overcame Satan, he overcame the world, he overcame death, and he overcame the grave. So it's his by right of conquest. So as we proceed through the judgments of Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 when the Lord returns, we need to remember because we're going to get into some heavy-duty judgments. And we're going to be here for a long time in the judgments. We need to continually remind ourselves not to question the Lord's authority and his right um, to send these judgments. We must remember what we learned in chapters 4 and 5, that the world is his to do with as he pleases by way of by way of creation, by way of Calvary, and by way of conquest. Actually, he has four primary divine reasons for sending the world these seven years of tribulation. So let's look at what those four primary reasons are. One of them, I have a long introduction, by the way, so it'll be a a while before we're actually in the scripture. One of the primary reasons for the seven years of tribulation on earth is for the salvation of a great number of people. That's the good news, that many people will be saved during the tribulation. It doesn't mean they won't have to give their lives, but at least for all of eternity they will be saved. Um, And this includes Jews and Gentiles. At some point during the early part of the tribulation period, God will save 144,000 Jews. And he will then uh, supernaturally, as you see in this picture, seal them. Somehow or another, they'll be sealed, and that will make them um, protected. They will be protected from harm. And then he will send them throughout the world. As a result of their witness, a great multitude of Gentiles from every tongue and tribe and nation will be saved. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 7, which we'll be getting to, <clears throat> I hope, by Christmas time. Furthermore, there will, there will be a good number of Jewish people saved in addition to these 144,000. And they will be saved due to the faithful preaching of two mighty witnesses. And these two witnesses will be dressed as Old Testament prophets. We'll talk about who they might be when we get there. And they will perform great signs. Why will they perform signs? Because what is it the Jews always request? They're always looking and asking for signs. And they will preach the gospel along with repentance, just like John the Baptist did, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, literally, and it will be at hand. And um, because of their preaching, many Jewish people will be saved, and they will become additional witnesses to their people. So one of God's purposes then for the seven years of tribulation is to increase the membership of his eternal kingdom by saving many, many people, both Jews and Gentiles. Well, another reason for it, and this goes along with what we have been learning about him as the kinsman redeemer, is to crush the kingdom of Satan. Since man's fall to the time of these seven years of tribulation, God will have allowed Satan to try almost every possible means to overthrow him. 
Although God, of course, has prevented Satan from doing this, from accomplishing his malicious goal, God has not yet, as we know, executed judgment on Satan. So the evil one, needless to say, is still doing his thing here on planet Earth. He is still doing his wicked deeds, and he is still around the world persecuting God's people and trying desperately to overthrow God and prevent his kingdom and the kinsman redeemer, who is the king, from coming back to Earth and evicting him. Naturally, as Satan's time grows shorter, and he knows that it is, he is going to be working overtime. Once the church is removed from earth in the rapture and the Antichrist is revealed, then Satan will really know that his time is growing short and he will begin his ultimate full-forced attempt to wipe out what nation in particular? Israel, so that God's plan to save her will be destroyed, and so all his promises to her will go unfulfilled. And he will also attempt to kill off all the Christians, those who have come to know Christ during the tribulation period, who are known as tribulation saints. And he will try to kill them off so that Christ will have no one to inhabit his earthly kingdom when he does return. Furthermore, Satan will do all in his power to gather together his forces, both demonic and human, to challenge Christ's power to evict them from the earth. But as we know, all of his efforts to defeat God, because he is already a defeated foe. Where was he defeated? He was defeated at the cross, and as we've said, all that awaits is for his sentence to be carried out. He will not be successful in destroying Israel, although he will destroy many Jews. Um, he will not be successful in martyring all of the tribulation saints either, nor will his assembled army at the Valley of Megiddo even stand a fraction of a chance. That's not the right picture of uh, preventing the Lord Jesus from coming and taking back what is rightfully his, which, of course, is planet Earth. Well, here's what I need to put up next. A third divine reason for the seven years of tribulation is to pour out judgment on unbelieving men and unbelieving nations. Revelation 3.10, you remember that wonderful promise that we had to the overcomers in the Church of Philadelphia? It contains a promise uh, which goes like this. Christ himself is speaking. He said, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. That's another name for the tribulation is the hour of temptation. He says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to do what? to try them that dwell upon the earth. That scripture, as we looked at it when we were back in the church of Philadelphia, not only helps to support a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church is removed before the tribulation, because he said, I will keep you from that hour. But that scripture also tells us that the purpose of these seven years, or at least one of the purposes, is to try the entire world. And remember how we looked at that word try? To test or to prove the world, to show the world, the people of the world and the nations of the world, what kind of character they really have. Isaiah 26 verse 21 tells us that it is a time, the seven years of tribulation is a time when the Lord will come out of his place to punish the inhabitants 
of the earth for their iniquity, for their sin. God will judge the nations of the world because of their godlessness. You see, they will willingly be deceived by the false teachings of both the world economic and the world ecumenic harlot systems. And they will willingly follow the false prophet in the worship of the beast. And for this godlessness, along with the fact that they will not repent in order to give Christ the glory that he deserves, they must be judged. So God will be proving their characters, trying their characters, and and they will show what kind of character they have by you know, willingly worshiping the beast and these other things that I've talked about. And so for their godlessness, they need to be punished. They will be punished. His fourth divine reason for the tribulation period is to save Israel. One of the Lord's greatest purposes for the tribulation is to bring his beloved nation of Israel to genuine saving faith and repentance. You know, for centuries she has been in a state of rebellion, refusing to repent of the crime that she committed when she crucified her own Messiah and Lord. And as a result, what has she suffered? She has suffered much. I mean, just wave after wave after wave of persecution as one Gentile nation after another has oppressed her and indulged in anti-Semitism. There have always been a few nations, however, such as the United States of America, which have been willing to allow Jews, when they are under times of persecution, to find refuge in them. But during the nightmarish reign of the Antichrist, there will be no nation for the Jews to seek refuge in because of the worldwide um, rule of the dictator and the Antichrist. I mean, his rule will be global, and he will not allow any nation to protect the Jews, including, sad to say, the United States. And so this will really be a heavy time of persecution for them. Now, that isn't to say that individual believers will not help individual Jews. We know that they will. That's actually what the Lord is talking about in Matthew 25 when he says, you know, if you give the least of these, my brethren, a cup of water, you know, he's talking about his brethren, the Jews. And that is actually, he's talking about during the time of tribulation. You will show your true character and your faith if you reach out to help a Jew. Then you will prove that you're a sheep rather than a goat. But whole nations will not help Israel. All the nations of the world will be gathered to Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon to fight against Israel. Well, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, at the Battle of Armageddon, the armies, as I said, of the world will gather there in an attempt on Satan's part to totally annihilate her and thereby to thwart God's plan to save her. The Lord himself, however, Satan thinks he's doing this on his own, but the Lord is actually using this tremendous pressure tactic as his own means, you see, of backing Israel into such a hopeless and helpless corner that she will finally, as a nation, finally and fully realize that there is no way of escape for her 
I mean, she'd be wiped out unless she turned to him in in repentance and crying out for help. And when she does cry out for help, God will send his son to wipe out the armies that are gathered against her and against him. And she will turn to him at long last in saving faith, and he will cleanse her from her sin, and then afterwards he will evict the satanic trinity. You know, we have a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the satanic trinity, who we will be looking at quite a bit in these future chapters, consists of Satan, he's the counterfeit God, the Antichrist, who is this counterfeit Christ, and the false prophet, who is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. He will evict the Satan, the uh, satanic trinity, and then, of course, he will establish his theocratic kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, after which this earth will be burned up, and we will have a new heaven and a new earth to live on forever and ever in the eternal state. Now, there is really no better way for us, I think, to come to an understanding of what the tribulation period is going to be all about than to look at the, some of the scriptures themselves. You don't necessarily have to turn to these because by the time you flip to one, I'll be reading another one. But I thought that I would just read to you some of the scriptures that tell us about the tribulation period. We are told about the tribulation as early back as the writings of Moses. Did you know that? All the way back in the book of Deuteronomy says Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 30 and 31 when thou speaking to Israel when thou Israel art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee even in the latter days if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice he will not forsake thee neither destroy thee nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swear unto thee it's amazing all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, we have that verse. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. This is where we get the title of the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah wrote, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, speaking of Jacob or Israel, shall be saved out of it. Daniel 9.27, from the famous great uh, 70 weeks prophecy, says this, And he, and here the he is referring to the Antichrist, and he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, which is how long? Seven years. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it Desolate. We'll talk more about the abomination of desolation a little bit later this morning. Then Daniel 12, verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael, you know, one of the archangels, Michael, stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. He's talking to Daniel. So Michael is the archangel over the nation of Israel. And he says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And then Joel chapter 2 Verses 1 and 2 says, The day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. 
Zephaniah 1.18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. And then there are the Lord's own words that we had back when we studied the Olivet Discourse. And by the way, if you missed out on that study, you might want to get our album on the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, because I went into a lot more details there about the tribulation period and how it relates to today's scene, world scene, than I'm going to do here. But in Matthew 24, verses 21-22, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, For there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake... Those days shall be shortened. And then these are also the Lord's words in Luke 21, verses 25 to 26. See, I had to have a way to show you all these pictures, so I had to read all these verses. It says, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. See, that's another title for the seven-year tribulation. With perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 tells us, For when they shall say what? Peace and safety. And what is the world saying now today more than ever before? What do they want? What does Israel want more than anything? Peace and safety. What will happen then? Sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And Revelation chapter 6, which we'll get to as when we come back from our break, says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, I think it's clear just from reading those few scripture verses that the seven years, known as the tribulation period, is going to be a time of divine wrath. Where does the wrath come from? From God, from from the Lamb. It's going to be a time of divine judgment and wrath. It's going to be a time of severe troubles and trials and tribulation and indignation such as this world has never ever known it's going to be a time of darkness and gloominess and desolation and depression and despair a time of of severe punishment and a time of severe refining yet through it all god will accomplish his objectives of bringing many people to salvation, of crushing the kingdom of Satan, of pouring out judgment on unbelieving men and nations, and of saving both physically and spiritually the nation of Israel. Well, the two prologue chapters, chapters 4 and 5, of the third major section of our general outline, which is called 
the program of Jesus Christ. If you remember our general outline, we have finished looking at the person of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and then we looked at the possession of, of Jesus Christ, which was chapters 2 and 3, his possession being his church. Now we are in the third section, the last section, which is the program of Jesus Christ. Well, we um, are now moved from heaven with the Apostle John, or we were there in those prologue chapters, 4 and 5, we were in heaven with the Apostle John, and there through his eyes we had a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, didn't we? We saw the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed as a standing slain lamb, and we watched through John as this lamb stepped forward and took the scroll deed the title deed to planet earth from the right hand of God the Father. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 7. Then when this dramatic moment in history, future, occurred, what happened? All of the universe broke out in praise and in adoration of, of the Lamb, right? And then we ended the chapter with the four living creatures in verse 14 falling down and saying they couldn't say anything more than what? One word, amen. And then we saw the 24 elders who represent, we say, the church falling down before the throne in worship of not only the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, but also in worship of the Lamb. Well, with chapter 6, now I hope, hope you really soaked up all that wonderful good news and all that praise and adoration and worship because with chapter 6 we are now taken from the beautiful scene in heaven to a very distressing scene down here on earth and this is all part of the up and down movement remember when we talked about the up and down move there's a back and forth movement in the book of revelation and there's also an up and down movement. Well, this is all part of the up and down movement. We were up in heaven, and now we come back down to earth. This is the first first time that we will be back down on earth since our look at the seven churches back in chapters 2 and 3. Dr. John Phillips, remember years ago we had him here for uh, one of our morning Bible studies. He's written many wonderful books on the Bible, one of them being exploring revelation and he just said this uh, so beautifully that I thought I just would read you know quote from him when he talks about the transition from heaven to earth that takes place in chapter 6 he says quote for two breathtaking soul inspiring chapters we have been in heaven the scroll changed hands and the right to judge and rule the world has been placed upon Jesus Now we must come down from the mount and out of the ivory palaces. Down here on the rebel planet of earth, the tempo is increasing. Passions are rising. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Disobedience to parents has grown up into brawling maturity, defying all authority. Men have become inventors of evil things, and their fearful inventions have become Frankenstein monsters threatening to destroy the globe. The time has come for God to intervene in human affairs, so judgment is given to the Son. The seals on the scroll are to be broken. End of quote. So the time of heavenly singing has ended because the hour of judgment has come. The worship of chapters 4 and 5 were in preparation for the wrath 
of chapters 6 to 19. The Lamb begins the program which will culminate in the establishment of his theocratic kingdom on earth. Well, he will come back as rightful kinsman redeemer and take back planet earth as the second Adam. Now, on our general outline, which I had just given to you in word, you see it now, we move from the heavenly hallelujahs to the earthly horrors. According to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, And again, if you have never studied that prophecy from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, we have a two-tape mini-album that you really need to get and study because there's so much of what we're going to be looking at that refers back to that 70 weeks prophecy. It's an extremely important prophecy. Well, according to it, seven years are left remaining on God's prophetic calendar for the nation of Israel before he brings her to righteousness and faith in his son. Daniel 9.27 tells us that this final year period decreed for Israel and for Jerusalem, it's not for the church, it's for Israel, that it will begin with the confirming of a covenant, which is probably a peace agreement of some kind, by the world dictator known as the Antichrist. That will begin this seven-year, this last seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week. The signing of a peace agreement by the world dictator. A peace agreement he will make with the nation of Israel. When will this seven-year period end? You know, with... Right, with this, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the time of his second coming. This seven-year period of time is what has been prophesied for us then in chapter 6 all the way to when the Lord returns in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Now, we note that something shocking happens in the middle of this seven-year period. Because Daniel wrote, and this is in Daniel 9.27, he wrote, And in the midst of the week, he, and that he goes back to speaking about the Antichrist, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Now, this picture up here is not a picture of what will happen when the Antichrist comes. This is a picture of when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple back in 168 B.C., I believe it was. That was a type of what will happen when the Antichrist comes and sets up an image of himself. You see what will happen. According to Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist signs this peace agreement with Israel. To keep, and that's what Israel wants, is peace, peace, peace. And he will somehow or another work things out between her and her enemies such that she will, you know, finally think she will be at peace. And the Arab nations around her that hate her so much will be at peace. And and, and she will think everything is wonderful. And she will think he is truly the peace bringer, her Messiah. Well, he will break his covenant with Israel. I mean, it was a false peace. He knew from the beginning when he signed it, he wasn't going to carry through. He breaks his peace with her in the middle of that seven-year period, which will be at the three-and-one-half-year mark, right? Half of seven is three-and-a-half. And he will then forbid her totally from offering her sacrifices in the temple, 
in Jerusalem. She will be so excited. You know, Israel is very busy right now. She has all the artifacts that she needs. She has the priests ready and trained. All that she needs is a temple. She could go in if somehow or another she could get the Mosque of Omar and just cleanse it as they had to do with the temple back after it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphany, she could even use the Mosque of Omar as her temple because it's right on the holy place. If she, All she had to do was clean it. Anyway, everything is ready for this, for her to start, worship, to start worshiping in the temple. And, um, but he will make her stop doing that, offering her sacrifices in the temple. And um, in fact, he will desecrate the temple just like Antiochus Epiphanes did by setting up an image of himself on the, in the holy place. I mean, that, that is a, an abomination. That is a big-time idol. This shows you that this guy really has an ego problem too, doesn't he? Of course he does. He's possessed by Satan himself. Well, this event is referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the abomination of what? You see it up here. The abomination of desolation. It's also spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So the, the uh, seven-year period, known as the tribulation, is divided into two halves. That's what I had on this picture here. Two halves. There are the first three and a half years, and there are the second half, three and a half years. And what is the decisive event that occurs in the middle to divide them, the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the temple and forbids Israel from worshiping there anymore to God. Well, following this abomination of desolation, he, the Antichrist, will begin a campaign of satanically inspired persecution designed to destroy both the remnant of Israel and all the Gentiles who have become Christians during the first part of the tribulation. Those are known as what? Tribulation saints. They're not part of the church because the church is gone. They are a separate entity known as tribulation saints. The persecution then of this second half of the tribulation, the latter three and a half years, becomes so intense that the Lord Jesus Christ himself referred to it as the time of great tribulation. This is in Matthew 24, 21, the Olivet Discourse, where he said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no nor ever shall be. Now, in the section of our outline which we have entitled Earthly Horrors, right here. We went from heavenly hallelujahs to now we're in earthly horrors. We find that there are going to be three series of judgments. There will be seven seal judgments. That's when the Lord breaks the seals on the scroll deed. And then seven what kind of judgments? trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl or vile judgments. So we've got seals, trumpets, and bowls, if you can remember that. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. Now the first of these three chronological judgments, which is the seal judgments, are described for us in Revelation chapter 6. At least the first six of the seal judgments are given to us in Revelation chapter 6. Now there are some Bible teachers who see enough similarity between these three sets of judgments to suggest that um, they run simultaneously. In other words, they teach that the first seal judgment 
will occur at the same time as the blowing of the first trumpet judgment and at the same time as the pouring out of the first bowl judgment. However, the problem with that particular interpretation is that it forgets or it ignores the fact that the opening of the seventh seal judgment, the seventh seal, when the Lord breaks that seventh seal, it is what brings about the seven trumpet judgments that we read about in chapters 8 and 9. And the blowing of the seventh trumpet judgment is what... in initiates, it's what introduces the seven bowl judgments of chapter 16. So we have to conclude, we really don't have any choice if we take the scripture literally, that the three sets of judgments run chronologically. In other words, first we have the seven seal judgments, the last seal judgment introduces the seven trumpet judgments, which come next. The last trumpet judgment brings about the seven vial or bowl judgments. Well, in chapter 6, as I said, the first six seals on the seven-sealed scroll are opened by the Lamb. Who is he? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they are opened one by one. He breaks each seal individually. And as each seal is broken, judgment comes forth upon the earth. Now, the first four seal judgments are commonly referred to as, you'll love some of these pictures now, <laughs> the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you remember what the Greek word apocalypse, apokalypsis, do you remember what that word means? It's another word for the revelation or the unveiling, exactly. So these are the four horsemen of the revelation. They are the four horsemen of the unveiling, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, based upon, now here's where you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 24. I told you to put a finger or something there. Based upon Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, now these, this comes from the Lord's Olivet Discourse. And this passage here, Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, is a parallel passage to what we will be looking at in Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8, which describe for us the early tribulation period. We know from this parallel passage in Matthew 24 that the first four seal judgments do begin the seven years of tribulation. The Lord Jesus, in answering his disciples' question about what the sign would be, you see there in verse 3, they ask him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming? They want to know what sign, you know the Jews always sought for signs, what sign would precede his coming, his second coming? And so in order to answer that question, he tells them in verses uh, 4 through 7 about the following sequence of events which would precede his second coming. First of all, he tells them in verses 4 and 5 about false Christs. He says, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So the first sign he gives them 
which will precede his second coming is that of false Christs. The second sign is in verse 6 where he talks about wars and rumors of wars. He says, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So the second sign he gives them after false Christs is the sign of war. Then he talks about famines and pestilences in verse 7. And he talks about earthquakes as well. All of those things, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes bring what? Death, exactly. Now these signs, now you can go back to Revelation chapter 6, run parallel, they coincide with the first four seal judgments. So although some people believe that these seal judgments do not begin, people believe that the the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we're going to look at, believe it or not, we're going to get there, (laughs) that these first four seal judgments do not begin until the second half of the tribulation. They say, no, this stuff doesn't occur until after the abomination of desolation, until the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Some people teach that, but here we will be teaching that they occur at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Why are we going to be teaching that? Well, because the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to go back to Matthew 24, verse 8, you don't have to. But after he had given those four things which parallel the first four seal judgments, in verse 8 he said that these are merely the beginning of sorrows. And that word for sorrow is the same word for birth pangs, you know, of of a woman in travail. These are just the beginning. What happens in your labor pains? Do they get worse and worse? Yes, they get worse and worse. This is just the beginning of the pain. So after speaking of the coming false Christs and wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes, which bring about death, he said all these are the beginning of sorrows. And then in verse 15 of Matthew 24, that same chapter, I probably took you out of that chapter too soon, he spoke of the abomination of desolation. And that happens when? In the middle of the tribulation. And then he goes on, and by the time you get to verses, I don't remember what they are, 27 to 30 or something like that, that's when he talks about his own return, when the Son of Man shall come. So the book of uh, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, is chronological. It goes from the beginning of sorrows to the middle of the tribulation with the abomination of desolation to the time of the Lord's second coming. So if we take that chronological and since the first four signs that he gave to his disciples parallel, coincide with the first four seal judgments, then we say that this also happens at the beginning of the tribulation period. So now with that very, very lengthy introduction, (laughs) whoa, let's get into the scripture. And let's look at the noise of thundering horses. And to do this, we're going to look at a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. Let's begin by looking at the white horse in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. John says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard... Notice how many times he talks about seeing and hearing. I mean, he's an eyewitness to these things. You can count on this fact that this is true. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, 
one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, one of the four beasts is speaking of one of the four living angelic creatures. And one of them says, come and see. And John says, and I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Well, the first thing that we want to notice before we go on to discuss the white horse and the rider upon it is that it is who that opened these seals. Who? Look right away at the very beginning of verse 1. Who opened them? Right. It's the Lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who took that seal and broke it. So the tribulation, you see, is not a time initiated by man's wrath, is it? It's not a time initiated by Satan's wrath. It's not a time initiated by any other earthly creature, not not an angelic being or anyone else. It is a time of God's wrath. God alone, the Lamb, will break the seven seals. None of the seals will be broken by the Antichrist, by rebellious mankind, or by anyone else. I mean, after all, didn't chapter 5 very clearly tell us that only Christ is worthy to take the scroll and to do what? Break the seals. Unloosen the seals thereof. And he alone, therefore, qualifies as the kinsman redeemer of both man and earth. And therefore, only he can instigate the events which will lead to the eviction of his enemies from earth so that he can take over that which is rightfully his. Well, when the Lord Jesus, the Lamb, opens this first seal, and by the way, you can go through the whole chapter and you'll see that he is the one who breaks open every single seal. When he does this, John hears the noise of what? The noise of thunder. And what did we talk about back in chapter 4, verse 5, when we saw thunders and lightnings coming from the throne? What did we say that thunder represents or symbolizes? Judgment. It's a symbol of judgment. And then one of the four living creatures gives a command to come and see. And suddenly, a rider on a white horse appears. Now, white, a white horse symbolizes a conqueror. You know, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, and other would-be world conquerors always rode on white horses. So this speaks of a conqueror. And this first seal horseman holds in his hand what? What's he holding in the picture? A bow, you know, like a bow and arrow. He's holding a bow. And what does he have on his head that was given to him? A crown. And John tells us then that he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, some Bible expositors and some very wonderful Bible expositors and preachers teach us that this one riding on the white horse is the same person who rides on the scene in Revelation chapter 19, also on a white horse. And who is that person? the Lord Jesus Christ. So some teach that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. They claim that that bow in his hand is a rainbow. It symbolizes a rainbow and that it speaks of mercy in the midst of judgment because of the fact that there are no arrows. He just has a bow and no arrows. And they also point out the fact that like Christ in chapter 19, he's on a white horse 
um, and that he has a crown on his head. So they conclude that this is Christ. However, the more common interpretation is that this first rider is the greatest of all counterfeit Christs. And who would that be? That he's the Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel 7, 8, and the willful king of Daniel eleven thirty six, whom Bible, teach, uh, Bible students have been anticipating for many, many, many centuries. <clears throat> really, the only similarity between the Lord Jesus Christ, who arrives in chapter 19, and this first horseman of the first seal... The only similarity, really, is that they're both riding on white horses. Now, we would expect, wouldn't we? We would expect the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, to resemble the true Christ because he will be Satan's greatest imitation of all time. And even the Jewish people themselves will be deceived by him because they will think that he is their true Messiah and their true peace bringer, Shiloh. And indeed, he will come at first bringing peace because, as I said, he will sign that peace covenant or he will confirm it with Israel, which will seemingly protect her from her many enemies who have been totally committed to her destruction. And this is indicated by the fact that he has a bow with no arrows because it speaks of not having to fight in order to gain his authority. He's going to be a really smooth type of politician or diplomat who is given his position. Notice it says a crown was given to him, perhaps by way of an election. That's not hard to fathom, is it? (laughs) And this is also indicated by the fact that Revelation 6 verse 2 states, as I said, that the crown was given unto him. So it speaks to, you know, the fact that the people willingly gave him his position. Of course, that term that the crown was given to him ultimately speaks of the fact that he received his position of worldwide leadership from whom? God, Christ, is allowing him to have this power for his own purposes. Well, it says that once he receives this crown, once he has given this crown, then he goes about conquering and to conquer, if you notice the end of verse 2. Well, now, since I have stated that the only similarity between Christ in Revelation 19 and this first rider on the white horse is the fact that they are both riding um, white horses, since I've said that, then you might ask me, well, then, What are the differences between the two? Well, I'm glad you asked because I happen to have five differences down here. First of all, the rider of Revelation chapter 19, whom we know for a fact is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is referred to in that chapter as faithful faithful and true. There's only one who's faithful and true. He's referred to as the word of God, and he is the word of God. He's also referred to as king of kings and lord of lords. So there's no doubt about it. We know the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he will have as his weapon a sword. Now, it would seem that if this first rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 is Christ, then would not he be carrying the same weapon, the same weapon that we see him with all the time? Remember back in the vision that John had of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16? What did he have coming out of his mouth? 
Right, a two-edged sword. Well, when we see him in Revelation 19, guess what? He's got the same weapon. It says, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword in Revelation 19, 15. So if these were the same, if this was the same person, he would be carrying the same weapon. Secondly, the writer of Revelation 19, who is the Lord, will have on his head many crowns. Many crowns. Whereas the writer on, in Revelation chapter 6 will only have one crown. And then furthermore, the word for the type of crown that Christ will have at his second coming is the word diadem. That speaks of the crown of a king. After all, who is he? He is the king of kings. But the writer in Revelation chapter 6 has a crown on his head, but it is a Stephanos crown. Remember when we talked about the differences in the crowns? This is the crown of a victor, but not of a king. Furthermore, the crown of Revelation chapter 6 was, as we said, given to him. This rider had his crown given to him. This is an indication that his authority is given to him by the permissive will of God. It can also indicate, as we said, that he gains his rule and authority by some type of an election or by the general consensus of the people rather than gaining his crown by conquest, as Christ will definitely do at his second coming. Another reason I believe that these are not the same rider is because of the chronology. The chronology of the first horse rider being Christ, as some say, if that white horse rider in Revelation 6 was Jesus Christ, this would present a problem with the rest of Scripture, which repeatedly tells us that when Christ comes in his second coming, he will come at long last as Shiloh, the peace bringer. What will follow his return? Peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Finally, there will be peace as he will reign as the prince of peace over this world in his theocratic kingdom for 1,000 years. However, what follows the rider of the first white horse in Revelation chapter 6? Anything but peace follows. We have talk of, as we see, we'll see the next three riders bring with them war and famine and pestilence and death and hell and martyrdom. That's the fifth seal and earthquakes in the sixth seal. So anything but peace follows the rider on the white horse in chapter six. Well, as stated earlier, another reason here. The first four seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6 parallel, remember, they coincide with the first four signs that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples when they said, what shall be the sign of your, of your coming in Matthew 24? And remember what he called that those first four signs? Just the beginning of sorrows. The first of those signs, which was given by the Lord in Matthew 24, was to take heed that no man, do what? Deceive you. His first sign was that of false Christ. And so this would very rightly coincide or parallel the rider on this first white horse as being the Antichrist, right? Beware, take heed that no man deceive you. It wouldn't parallel Matthew 24 if this first rider was Jesus Christ. 
All right. And the last reason I'll give you for why I do not believe that they are the same writer is because of the chronology of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 to 9. That scripture passage tells us that after the one who restrains evil is taken out of the way, then shall that wicked be revealed. Now, what this means is that after, who's the one who restrains evil right now on planet Earth? The Holy Spirit, and he does so through you and I. We are the body of Christ. He is restraining evil from just breaking out totally on planet Earth. Well, when he is removed, then who shall appear? Who shall be revealed? The wicked one, the Antichrist, exactly. So, you know, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We probably will not know who he is. He won't be revealed till after we are removed. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for the real Christ, the Jesus Christ, right. So it says that after the removal of the church. Well, when did we see the church removed? We saw the church removed, you know, typically when John was called up into heaven at the end of chapter 3. So this would make sense that now, after John is in heaven, the 24 elders representing the church are in heaven, that then the Antichrist is revealed. Here he is, breaking of the first seal. There he is on the white horse. So those are reasons why I feel that it is not, the rider on this first white horse is not Jesus Christ, he is the Antichrist. All right, now let's look at the red horse, okay, in verses 3 and 4. It says, And when he, that again is the lamb, had opened the second seal, I, John, heard the second beast, that's another one of the living creatures, say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Well, the Antichrist's false peace will end in full-blown bloodshed and worldwide warfare. He may have promised peace, but only God himself can bring true, worldwide, lasting peace. Isaiah 57:21 tells us that there is no peace to the wicked. The color of red of this second horse symbolizes what? Blood and war. The Lord Jesus, again, he spoke of this time in Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7, when he told his disciples the second sign of his second coming, that it was growing near, was that they would hear of wars and rumors of wars, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, Revelation verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, tells us that people will actually be killing one another, which really even indicates that there will be fighting within nations, you know, like um, civil wars. And this agrees with what Ezekiel predicted about this period of time in the latter days when Ezekiel said that every man's sword shall be against his brother. Ezekiel 38:21. And even the word great sword, you see at the end of verse 4 where it says and there was given unto him a great sword, that word in the Greek is not the word the normal word for a soldier's battle sword. But it is the word for an assassin's dagger. And so all of this suggests to us that it will just be a a time of total anarchy when people will be murdering one another in cold bloodshed. Even people in their own countries and even people of their own blood. Most likely, 
what will happen? I, you know, I don't know for sure since this hasn't occurred yet, but most likely after the Antichrist goes forward conquering and to conquer, some of the nations of the world will be dissatisfied with his sudden greed. You know, he just wants to take over the whole entire world, and so they will attempt to revolt. However, it will be too late for their attempt uh, to stop this Satan-possessed man will end in much, much bloodshed and much war, many people being killed. And this is evident by the opening of the next seal, which brings forth another gruesome rider, a rider on a black horse. So let's read about him in verses 5 and 6. It says, And when he, again, that's the lamb, had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Well, the color of black is in the Bible symbolic of famine. It tells us in Lamentations 5.10, our skin was black as an oven because of the terrible famine. The third rider represents famine, worldwide famine. What is he carrying in his hand? You can see in the picture. Balances are in his hand. This indicates the measuring out of the little bit of remnants of food that will be available at this time. War and famine always go together, don't they? And a shortage of food drives up the prices, right, and forces governments to ration what little bit there is to eat. The expression, there was a Jewish expression, which is given to us in Leviticus 26, 26, which says, to eat bread by weight. And this indicates a food shortage. Whenever we're eating bread by weight, that's a food shortage. Verse 6 here in this chapter states that a penny, which is, was a denarius, would purchase only one measure of wheat or three measures of barley, because barley is a cheaper grain. Well, in the New Testament times, a penny was sufficient to purchase eight times more than that. So this may indicate that there will be eight times less uh, food supply available in the tribulation than, is avail- than was available in New Testament times. And population-wise, we know that now there are many, many more people now than there were back in John's day. And in John's day, a penny was a full day's wage for a slave. If a slave worked all day, he earned a penny. So what the scripture means here is that during the time of the tribulation, and this is, remember, the beginning of sorrows, the beginning tribulation, a man can work all day long to merely feed himself. One measure of of wheat would only be enough to feed himself. He will have absolutely nothing else left over for the rest of his family or for his house or for clothing or for anything else for that matter. Now, this third seal judgment corresponds, as we've been pointing out, to Matthew 24, verse 7, which speaks of famine following the appearance of false Christs and then wars. The little phrase that we see here in uh, the, at the end of 
where is it? At the end of verse 6 in Revelation 6, the little phrase that says, See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. That's a sad irony of this whole situation because it means that luxury food items, oil and wine, will be available at this time. And they will be in no shortage of supply. But, of course, the vast majority of the people will not be able to afford them. Only the rich will be enjoying the food, you know, plenty of food and luxuries. Now, when we realize today, and I didn't have a, a up-to-date statistic. I wish I could have found one. I guess I could have called the library. But the first time I taught this 10 years ago, they estimated that there, were 10, there are 10,000 people a day dying of starvation in the world. Can you imagine that? 10,000 people a day, and that's an old statistic. So if we realize that's what's going on today, and we are not even in the tribulation period, it just becomes, I, I think it just goes beyond what we can think about of how bad it will be during this time when the black horse comes upon this planet. He arrives on the scene. All right, let's move on now to um, the pale horse. And he's really the worst of all. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It says, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. When the fourth seal will be opened by the Lamb of God, and John hears the fourth living creature calling out the fourth rider, a pale horse will emerge on the scene, and he will be bringing with him two symbolic personages. Death will be actually riding upon this pale horse, and by the way, the Greek word there for pale is the word chloros, and it means actually a sickly pale green color. It's a horrible color. And it says that death will be riding on this pale horse and hell will be following behind. Death claims the body, but hell claims what? The soul, the eternal soul. Death, of course, is always the aftermath of war and of famine. And hell follows behind on its heels, gathering for all of eternity the souls of those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one through whom men can avoid the second death, which is hell, eternal separation from God. Verse 8 here tells us that how much of the earth will be affected by death and hell. It says one-fourth of the earth will be affected. The death rate... From, uh, from war and famine and pestilence from beasts. And, you know, pet, we talked about this when we discussed the Olivet Discourse. Um, rats are one of the worst beasts on planet Earth. More people have died from diseases caused by rats, pestilences from rats, than any other beast. 
So this very well may be just an outbreak of, of rats and typhoid fever and all that. We talked about that. It was really gruesome, but it's a thought to think about. Anyway, the, the death rate from all these things will be so tremendously high during just the first part of the tribulation that one-fourth of the earth will be affected. Now, I don't really know if that means one-fourth of the population will die or if it means that all this is going on on one-fourth of the land masses of the earth. But by the fact that it says that Hades, or hell, follows behind death, that indicates, and this to me was kind of cheerful news if there can be such a thing, in all this devastation. But it indicates that those who perished are going to be the unsaved dead. Because a believer who receives Christ during the tribulation period will not, even if he's martyred, he will not go to Hades. Hades is a place reserved for the unsaved. It's a place reserved for the unbelievers until they stand before the great white throne judgment. So to me, reading the fact that Hades follows behind death, it sounds like these people who will die will be unbelievers. Now notice that it tells us that death and hell were given their power over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Who gave death and hell this power? Oh, I wanted to show you this picture because it was the only one of the four men that actually had Hades. See him back there? Following behind death. The other just showed the four but didn't show Hades. There they've got Hades pictured as flames of fire. Well, who gave death and hell their power? Who do you think gave death and hell their power? The one who has the keys of hell and death, as we learned back in Revelation 1.18, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord is the one who is sovereignly in control of all that happens on earth during this time of tribulation. Four times, if you go through these verses, 1 to 8, four times you will notice that we are told that either the crown or the power, or the weapon of destruction, such as the great sword, that those things were given to these four horsemen of the apocalypse. So who is in control? God is in control. He will be carrying out his sovereign purposes that we discussed at the beginning of this lesson. Well, there are only two more seals. Can you believe it? In one morning's lesson, we got through four seal judgments. I know... That will not last for long. But anyway, there are only two more seals to be opened in this chapter. There will be a seventh seal, but it will be opened later on in another chapter. But we're going to have to wait until after Thanksgiving before we get to those two other seals, seal judgments. But what we have seen in this lesson, I think you will all agree, is truly a sad, tragic devastating picture, at least from unsaved man's perspective, as the lamb turns lion, and in judgment and judge justice, he begins to take back that which is rightfully his, that which he created, that which he redeemed with his own shed blood. He has given mankind, nobody could argue the fact that this lamb turned lion has given man a long age of grace in which he could have sought him and he could have turned to him. But as we all know, the vast majority of people 
have refused his grace, and they have turned their backs on him instead. Otherwise, this place would be packed out this morning. But most people have mocked him, and they have ridiculed the Bible when it says, How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, they mock those words and they neglect the free offer of so great salvation, which he would, which would have prevented them from escaping the wrath to come. You know, it's not, this is not God's desire, these things that we are reading about. It is not his desire that any man should perish. It's clearly his desire that all men And women and boys and girls would come to faith in Jesus Christ so that they would not need to perish. They would not need to go to Hades. And they would not have to possibly live to go through these terrible judgments that we've seen and which get worse, far worse than what we've seen this morning. His desire is that all men would willingly choose to spend eternity rejoicing with those 24 elders. Right? As part of his church. Yet because God will not force men to worship him and to love him and to believe on his son, he gives them a choice. All men have a choice. The hallelujahs of heaven or the horrors of earth or the horrors of hell. So what will it be for you? I ask. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I wrote a little poem that I'd like to close with before we go to prayer and then have Kathy bless us. I can almost hear the thunder. I can barely see their forms, but I truly sense the coming of those horsemen of the storms. Their shadows are now casting their darkness o'er the land. I do believe the Father is stretching forth his hand. If you'll listen real closely, you can hear the thunders roll, for the worthy Lamb of God divine is about to take the scroll. Don't wait until he breaks its seals if you've not come to him, for if you wait, you'll have to face those horsemen harsh and grim.